From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Welcome. Welcome to the uh, program. Before we begin the proceedings, I want to welcome once again a brand new affiliate, KABQ, 1350 AM, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Albuquerque's Progressive Talk, KABQ. 1350 a.m. and uh, welcome to the Conspiracy Show family. Great to have you on our uh, roster of uh, affiliates. Uh, you know, I was kind of taken aback recently. Uh, I saw a, a, an article uh, that said the magic bullet is not so magic. And I thought, oh, how can they possibly say that? I mean, how you know, the bullet supposedly goes through Kennedy's back, comes out his throat, goes through the car seat, shatters Conley's rib cage, comes out his wrist, goes into his thigh, comes out on a gurney at Parkland Hospital in pristine condition. And oh, then I realized the article I was reading had to do with the magic bullet food processor. <laughs> not so, not so magic. Anyway, a little levity we inject, even though you know it's fifty years, fifty years since the assassination. I think we can just sort of lighten the mood a little bit. But it is, uh, admittedly, you know, a solemn occasion. And uh, this next hour. We'll take, I guess, one last look at the Kennedy assassination as we approach the 50th anniversary before we close the book, really. I've been sort of going hot and heavy on the, the JFK assassination all year as we approach the 50th. And uh, after tonight, I think enough said for now. Uh, I was sort of joking recently with, when talking with uh, Jim Mars and uh, Nelson Thal. We'll reconvene here in 50 years and talk about it again. Unless, you know, in the next several years or next several months, something else comes out perhaps from the JFK assassination records collection, which was actually brought about largely as a result of Oliver Stone's JFK uh, movie. But barring that, I think we'll, we'll put it all on the table and, and leave it there after tonight and uh, move on to other things. But it certainly is deserving of one more solid hour. With that in mind, very uh, pleased to welcome back into the studio our uh, good friend, our media scientist, resident media scientist, archivist for the late Marshall McLuhan, and uh, the man who smuggled the Zapruder film uh, into Canada back in 1972 after receiving a copy from Penn Jones, one of the granddaddies of JFK research down in Love, Love Field in uh, Dallas, brought it up here at great risk to his own personal liberty and where it was shown on several, I believe, CBC border stations after they had signed off the regular broadcasting day. A few select researchers around North America were notified that the 26 seconds, perhaps the most famous 26 seconds of film ever shot, the Sapruder film, would be playing. And they were instructed to hit the record button on their giant video recording machines back then. And that's how the Sapruder film first got out, was first distributed to a wider audience. And this is going back, you know, three years before, of course, it was shown by Geraldo Rivera on his uh, ABC Late Night program. Uh, Nelson Thal, welcome to this Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? Just great being here. It's a mighty topic that will continue for many years to come. And w- one year ago today, we were uh, doing this very program, and you brought in the replica rifle, the Manlicker Carcano rifle, and yeah. uh, we were trying to see if we could... Cycle uh, the bolts. Cycle the bolts uh, three times in six seconds and so forth. They're pretty tricky. Uh, I'm no... <laughs> I've, I've rarely ever handled a gun, but a kind of a clumsy, flimsy weapon, was it not? The humanitarian rifle, as it's called. But I hear conflicting evidence on that now. Nelson, I, I hear that, no, it was a military issue for good reason that that weapon could perform and, and do the things that, that well, it's reported to have done. Well, you held it in your hand. Well, but I'm not an expert. What do I know? <laughs> what do I know? 
I mean, why did they call it the humanitarian weapon? Because you couldn't really kill anybody with it. It's a very crude gun. And, of course, the one that was tested by the FBI, they had to uh, fix the scope, uh, the so-called Oswald rifle. They had to fix the scope and shimmy it and line it up. And even then, there wasn't a marksman in the United States that could duplicate what Oswald was supposed to have done. All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll probably get around to discussing that in a little more detail over the next hour. But I want to welcome someone else. And uh, this is a broadcaster up in Kingston, also an award-winning music composer uh, of feature films, uh, who has written a book, The J.F. Kennedy Assassination, which was based on exclusive explosive revelations made by JFK's closest aide and speechwriter, Ted Sorensen. And uh, a great pleasure to welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Brent Holland. Explain now, you have uh, been honored. You were the only or are the only Canadian who's been asked to speak in Dallas on the 50th anniversary. And this, I'm guessing, has something to do with your longtime friendship with Kennedy speechwriter aide Ted Sorensen. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, several years ago, I was down in New York City to interview three Nobel Peace uh, laureates. I had already interviewed Ted Sorensen for my show twice, I guess, and uh, I just wanted to meet and greet with him. I mean, this is virtually the fellow that wrote the letter to Khrushchev to get Khrushchev to back down during the Cuban Missile Crisis and take the missiles out. He saved the world virtually, so I thought it would be very cool if I was in New York City to meet Ted, and Ted invited me into his Manhattan apartment, and thank God something told me before I left the hotel room to tag along my video camera, and I ended up with his last ever interview because it was only six weeks after that. He died tragically. He took a second stroke after getting off the uh, telephone. And this is a theory and all in itself with Obama. Wow. Very interesting. Yeah. Now, very interesting. If my recollection is correct, now Kennedy delivered, I think it was the summer of 63. He delivered a very famous speech at the American University. You know, looking ahead, I think, to his second mandate, Kennedy wasn't necessarily as bold uh, as he might have been. He, he didn't feel because of it was such a close election with Nixon that maybe he had the mandate that he should. So he was anticipating that, you know, if he was going to run against Barry Goldwater in 64, he'd have maybe a bigger margin, a bigger mandate. And he was going, he was preparing to make bolder moves. And one of those likely was nuclear disarmament. And he delivered this speech at American University. And I'm wondering if that famous speech was written by Ted Sorensen. I think it was called To Move the World. Yes, it was. It was actually, Ted calls it the peace speech. And uh, just about every speech JFK gave, Ted was involved with in one way or another. And uh, the two of them had a symbiotic relationship. Ted was with him for 11 years when he was a senator. They virtually shared rooms together when they were on the road when uh, Senator Kennedy was campaigning to become president. And it's very interesting. They both shared idealism. Very often, Ted told me that he would write a speech with JFK in mind, and very often JFK would change maybe one or two words, and that would be it. He was able to encapsulate exactly what JFK was thinking. You know, people often talk about Martin Luther King's speech exactly one year to the day. He was assassinated in a church, a famous speech where he he talked about Vietnam and, and how the United States was the greatest threat to peace. And a lot of assassination researchers point to that speech as being 
sort of the nail in the coffin for Dr. King. I'm wondering whether that peace speech likewise served uh, as the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of the military-industrial complex. And, and when, when Kennedy was talking about you know nuclear test bans and so forth, whether that was just too much for the military-industrial complex to bear. What are your thoughts, and did Ted Sorensen ever talk to you about that? Just let me read your quote from the interview I did with Ted, and this is Ted speaking. I don't know. Nobody really knows, and I try to avoid reading most of these so-called conspiracy books, quote-unquote. The fact is that Kennedy had enemies in the right wing, particularly because of civil rights and because his American University speech, which is the one you just alluded to, I think it was June 18th, if I'm not mistaken, indicated that he was taking a more accommodating position towards the Soviet Union. He also had enemies amongst organized crime, as did his brother Bobby, of course. He also supposedly had enemies among communists in both the Soviet Union and Cuba, although I don't think either one of them, and I don't believe it either, uh, would have thought that they would gain by Kennedy's removal. All I meant to say in the book, his book, Counselor, was considering the number of enemies that he had in the military and intelligence circles in the United States. Lord knows they had reasons to get rid of him. They had opportunities to have access to arms and to reach out to the kind of weird and confused individuals who can be recruited for that kind of work. Uh, Brent Holland, uh, broadcaster, filmmaker, writer on uh, the line uh, with us from uh, Kingston, Ontario. And uh, Nelson Thal, media scientist, assassination researcher, uh, joins us in studio. Nelson, uh, talk to me about uh, Kennedy's enemies within, let's call it the national security state. I mean, obviously, he had battles early on with with Alan Dulles uh, over the Bay of Pigs. And I think Kennedy sort of begrudgingly realized he had to go along with that. He couldn't appear to be you know, soft on communism. He had to do kind of a delicate dance. But when, when was it cemented, I guess, in the minds of Kennedy's enemies that he had to go? Was there one speech or was there one executive order? Well, before the American Newspaper Publishers Association in 61, he gave his famous secret society speech in which he said that the enemy of the republic was a secret society, which he abhorred and which was the enemy of the republic. And he said, quote, it was a monolithic, ruthless conspiracy, quote, unquote. I think that was certainly a point at which he realized that he had some major enemies that were about and afoot. And he certainly took a lot of actions which got him into trouble. He had a lot of enemies in the oil industry because of Loophole, Texas. He was looking at bringing out and challenging the Fed by bringing out a a currency issued by the actual United States government rather than the Federal Reserve. I mean, the mob was an enemy because Bobby Kennedy was going after. So there were a lot of people. There was a whole host of power groups that he had alienated. But certainly that secret society speech, I think, in 61 was was a major turning point. All right, we'll take a time out. Uh, Brent Holland, broadcaster, award-winning music composer, the only Canadian uh, invited to speak in Dallas on the uh, 50th anniversary of the assassination of JFK. On the line from Kingston, Nelson Thal in studio. I'm back with more of The Conspiracy Show after this. Don't go away. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts 
far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. Poking holes in the darkness, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. And one last look uh, at the JFK assassination before we close the books as we approach the uh, the 50th anniversary. On the line from Kingston, Ontario, Brent Holland, a broadcaster and uh, the author of JFK Assassination from the Oval Office to Dealey Plaza. Nelson Thal, assassination researcher, media scientist in studio. Let's go to Parkland Hospital for a moment uh, where, of course, Kennedy and uh, an injured Governor Connolly were taken. Now, in your book, JFK Assassination, Brent, you interviewed Dr. McClelland, who was one of the attending physicians. What did he reveal that you found most fascinating when Kennedy arrived? When Kennedy arrived, he was still alive. Uh, Many people believe that he was dead, but no, he was still breathing on his own now. I have to put a disclaimer on that because obviously he had no brain left. But what was really imperative to what Dr. McClellan told me was that he had no rear right of his head. It was completely gone. That can only mean exit wound, and uh, that means that definitely there was a shooter from the front, and by definition, two shooters then, and uh, conspiracy. Nelson, you jump in here because I've, you know, you've seen the autopsy photos, yeah. and you see the rear of Kennedy's head, and it appears to be intact. So how do we square the testimony of not well, only there was a mat- flap over it, they say, that so that the brain matter, of course, the brain matter and the tissue went to the back of the car and Jackie Kennedy went to try and retrieve his skull, a piece of his skull. But certainly his, there was not much left of his of the right side of his brain. Now, it wasn't only Dr. McClellan. I have read there were, I don't know, maybe two dozen people that were working on Kennedy at the time. And I've seen quotes from about a dozen of them, and they all reiterated, Brent, what Dr. McClellan told you, that there was an exit wound, uh, the right rear of his skull. At a JFK Lancer convention, I can't remember, sometime in the early 80s, I met with Dr. Perry, and he said the tracheotomy that he did on Kennedy's throat, that there was a bullet hole there in the front of the neck. An entry. An entry, exactly. So that was another indication of a shot from the front. I interviewed a a Dallas crime scene investigator. Everybody's seen the shows by now on TV, CSI Miami, CSI, well, just about everything at this point. Using modern 21st century crime techniques, she examined the Zapruder film. Using these 21st century techniques that she's put criminals away behind bars with, she found a frontal shot as well. She found a frontal shot? Correct. Now, given the just the testimony of the attending physicians at Parkland when Kennedy came in to the emergency room. Exit wound, rear of the skull. And how does that get flipped around by the time, you know, the the autopsy is performed at Bethesda? What happened? Well, he went to Walter Reed first, and that's when it was sanitized. The body was sanitized, and the real brain was removed. And I can't remember who it was back in the 80s and 90s uh, at the convention. There was the actual attending intern 
And he said that at Bethesda, when he pulled the body and uh, unwrapped the towel, the Kennedy's brain fell out. And so he realized the stem had been cut and a new brain had been put in. I mean, the powers that be here, Richard, are so powerful that the forensics have been altered. And when you have powers that be that are above the law, then they can pass down to the legal authorities all sorts of proof of the altered theory and go to go along with their theory. And this is why uh, sometimes following just the evidence that's put before you cannot be relied upon. Brent, another individual that you have uh, interviewed is Abraham Bolden, who was the first African-American on uh, JFK's Secret Service detail, who JFK had handpicked himself. What did Bolden tell you about that day? First of all, I want to say Abraham Bolden is a true hero. Uh, he suffered greatly after the assassination because he was a whistleblower against the Secret Service. He explained to me that there was many templates in place to kill President Kennedy and that after the assassination, virtually the Secret Service went in and covered up completely. Now, was that for malice reasons? We don't know. He believes, as I do, that it was to cover their incompetence. We all know it's true fact that a lot of the agents were drunk that day, and not that it's ever happened to me, or I'm sure you, Richard, but I know when I've been out drinking the night before and stayed up all night the next morning for a softball game, I don't hit too many home runs, and these guys were supposed to be sharp to protect the President of the United States, and we can all see in that famous Alchins photo that none of them are moving. They're all looking to see where the shot came from, and they should have been all bolting to the back of that car. Uh, I spoke recently with uh, Jim Mars, one of the preeminent JFK researchers, and he mentioned uh, Abraham Bolden in connection with Lee Harvey Oswald sending a letter, I believe, to the uh, the FBI using his pseudonym, warning of a plot in Dallas, warning uh, of the need to beef up security uh, in Dallas, which makes, of course, uh, Oswald look like uh, you know someone who was trying to prevent the assassination, not participate in it. What did Abraham Bolden tell you about Lee Harvey Oswald? Did he think he did it? We never got into that aspect of it. We talked mostly about uh, what happened to him when he was in prison, uh, the dastardly things. Also, we talked extensively about a fellow by the name of Valet, who was almost identical. Uh, There were so many similarities between this fellow Valet, who was situated in Chicago, and Lee Harvey Oswald. It was uncanny. They both had been in Japan, one at... um, Osaga Air Force Base uh, in Japan, uh, that's where the Harvey Oswald was. And forgive me, I can't remember the name of the second base Atsugi. where Valet was. Atsugi, Atsugi was Atsugi. Oswald. Uh, Atsugi Same. was Oswald. So and, and, Valet was sort of a parallel to Oswald. Oh, completely. He was arrested because uh, there was a plot afoot. They had got hold of a plot that uh, there was going to be an assassination attempt only two weeks before Dallas where they were going to kill Kennedy from a high uh, office building, just the same way that it happened in Dallas. These templates were in place. There was uh, many, many templates uh, right across the country wherever JFK was going to get rid of him. And you mentioned that Bolden was in prison. Tell me about that. What happened? Oh, horrible stuff. Abraham Bolden blew the whistle, as I said, on the Secret Service. He was framed for a crime he did not commit. As a matter of fact, he was um, thrown in jail for a crime that people say that he had embezzled some money 
And unfortunately, uh, they believed him. There was not much pretense for saving a black man in those days, that's for sure. And uh, the person that he was alleged to have uh, taken the money from came out and said, no, that in fact the Secret Service had forced him to lie against Bolden, and still nothing was done. Bolden was thrown in jail, and he was taken to a medical insane ward in one of the prisons and forced to take drugs, and several miracles occurred for him to get out of there. It's just an amazing story. It should be made into a feature film, and let's hope one day it does, and justice prevails, and Abraham Bolden comes to the forefront of this and uh, is not only pardoned, but his whole record espunged because uh, he was absolutely railroaded. Brent Holland, the author of JFK Assassination from the Oval Office to Dealey Plaza, on the line in Kingston, and Nelson Thal, assassination researcher, media scientist in studio. We were talking about the role of the Secret Service in covering it up. Nelson, I seem to recall a story, I'm not sure if you told me this or someone else, that there was, outside of Parkland Hospital, when the limousine was parked there, a Secret Service agent was seen going into the car with a sponge in a bucket, and they were basically cleaning up the inside of the limousine. Yeah, and eventually, of course, the limousine was sent for sanitation, and it was sanitized by Lee Iacocca, was in charge of that. And remember, we did a show on that. Wait, you, you're implicating the well, Lee Iacocca, the president, even, the former president of Ford Motor Company. Yeah, he was in covering even, up the assassination. Well, I'm not the, the <laughs> I'm not the only one. I mean, uh, many assassination well, researchers, Penn Jones, May Brussels, Sherman Skolnick, all talked about uh, Dave Emery. All of them talked about Lee Iacocca's role in sanitizing the the uh, the Lincoln Continental. Uh, when you say sanitizing, what do you well, mean? Well, removing all evidence as to what direction where the bullets hit. There were a number of of, uh, of there's ev- was evidence in the car as far as that could give you an idea of where the bullets were all from. Right, so th- this is the theory of other these other uh, assassination researchers that you mentioned, May Brussel and others, uh, David Emery. Uh, yeah. I'm not uh, familiar Stolen with that. I'm, I mean, Jones. I certainly wouldn't want sure. to impugn the reputation of. Uh, of uh, Lee Harvey, or not Lee, uh, Lee Iacocca. Lee Iacocca. Have you heard that, Brent? I have heard about the sanitization theory. However, um, I, for one, boy, am I ever going to go out on a limb here, but uh, here we go anyways. I don't believe Johnson or there was a military-industrial complex involved in the assassination whatsoever. I don't think it was a coup d'etat. You don't? And I... I don't, not at all. And I can explain that if you'd like. It's yeah, let's take a, absolutely. Let's take a few moments. Okay, um, I did up until the point until I had met Ted. Ted was um, so close to JFK, as was um, Dave Powers, and uh, also uh, Kenny O'Donnell. A good example of that is in the movie 13 Days, starring Kevin Costner, which was shot in uh, Toronto, I believe. Um, You can see the dynamic between the two characters of JFK and Kenny O'Donnell. These guys were uh, personal friends. They were like brothers, as tight as brothers. I would argue they were even tighter than Ted Kennedy. Um, They were urged, all of them were urged to stay on by Johnson after the assassination. Uh, The head of the Joint Chiefs of of Staff was uh, General Maxwell Taylor. Maxwell Taylor in the... um, in the Second World War was the head of the 101st or the 82nd, one of them. And um, if you watch the movie A Bridge Too Far, you can see Maxwell Taylor in that movie as well. 
he was handpicked by JFK. The head of the CIA was handpicked by JFK after the failure of the Bay of Pigs. Uh, Alan Dallas indeed had lied. He had done his own paper, research paper on the Bay of Pigs, and hid it from the Kennedy administration because it said, without question, it was doomed to failure no matter what they did. And Ted told me that. Um, so I don't believe that Johnson was involved, and the reason being, I don't think the people around Johnson, and definitely not the folks I just mentioned, would have stood for a coup d'etat. And I'm not talking tanks or anything like that, but even an ideological coup, because he wanted to keep Ted on. He begged Ted to stay. Uh, he begged O'Donnell to stay, all these folks to stay. While I'm on the subject of Kenny O'Donnell and Dave Powers, I just want to give you a little uh, preview. I've got seven smoking guns, proof positive of conspiracy in the book. And both of those guys were in the follow-up car to JFK's car. They were in the Secret Service car, sitting in the front seat. They saw the shooter on the grassy knoll. They were asked to cover that up for national security, and they did. Can you name them? Kenny O'Donnell, oh, Dave Powers. Oh, it was those two. Ah. It was those two. Yeah. And they told you or they told Ted Sorensen? They had told or another researcher who I had on my show by the name of Lamar Waldron directly that they saw the shots coming from the grassy knoll. And they also told um, uh, the House Speaker at the time um, in the – I think it was in the 70s. Jeez, uh, I can't think of his name. Tip O'Neill. Tip O'Neill. Thank you, my friend. All right. Uh, so this is uh, proof positive. There's no question there was uh, more than one shooter. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think there was maybe four different spots. All Kennedy right. was a marked man for a long, long time. All right. And so uh, Brent Holland says no to the military-industrial complex or the national security state apparatus. Uh, we'll get Nelson Thal's take on that when we come back as we look at the 50th anniversary of the assassination of the 35th president, Jack Kennedy. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The magic bullet enters the president's back, headed downward at an angle of 17 degrees. It then moves upward in order to leave Kennedy's body from the front of his neck. Wound number two. Where it waits 1.6 seconds. Presumably in midair, where it turns right, then left, right, then left, and continues into Conley's body at the rear of his right armpit. Wound number three. The bullet then heads downward at an angle of 27 degrees, shattering Conley's fifth rib and exiting from the right side of his chest. Wound number four. The bullet then buries itself into Conley's left thigh. Wound number five. In which it later falls out and is found in almost pristine condition on a stretch in a corridor of Parkland Hospital. That's some bullet. That's some bullet. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Brent Holland, author of JFK Assassination from the Oval Office to Dealey Plaza, and Nelson Thal, media scientist, assassination researcher in studio. Uh, so, uh, just to recap, Brent does not believe uh, that LBJ was involved, nor the what we uh, loosely term the military-industrial complex. Uh, Nelson Thal, who do you think is responsible? Well, I think you've got to start with some of the interesting where I started, and that was the um, the interesting connections between uh, Walter Dornberger, who was uh, on Hitler's Hitler's Waffen SS general, who um, was uh, sentenced at Nuremberg, 
and um, sentenced to be executed and was not executed and wound up as the vice president of Bell Helicopters and was the boss. Uh, of course, during the war, he was um, Ge- von Braun's boss. And um, at Bell Helicopters, uh, he was protected by the Americans. He got out through the Vatican rat line. And uh, his num- he was Michael Payne's boss. And Michael and Ruth Payne safe-housed one of the Oswalds. Um, Professor Popkin's book, The Second Oswald, is a wonderful book because there was more than one Oswald. There was an Oswald that went to Russia uh, and as a result of defecting and giving up uh, classified information, Francis Gary Powers claimed that as a result of Oswald's uh, information, the Russians were able to shoot him down. The U-2 uh, pilot. Yes. yes. Now, another Oswald returned of a different height, and uh, according to the Warren Commission, a completely different height from the Oswald that went. And the Oswald that went and defected from Atsugi, Japan, had this training, uh, he returned, and Michael Payne and Ruth Payne safe housed them, and uh, they were uh, working for Dornberger. And you've, so you've got Walter Dornberger, you've got Galen, another Waffen SS general, takes is in control at the CIA. You get Helene Van Dam, who's on Hitler's staff, and um, she becomes governor and President Reagan's appointment secretary. So you're talking about what uh, Jim Mars wrote about, also the rise of the Fourth Reich, the, this time in America. So yeah, you're talking I, about a Nazi connection. I think that May Brussels rise of the Fourth Reich and the Nazi connection to JFK conspiracy is an important place to start. But one thing I think we have to ask ourselves, what power group has the power to eliminate the president, the protection for the president, change the parade route, Earl Cabell, Charles Cabell, one's the mayor of Dallas, the other's the co-director of the CIA, send Oswald to Russia and get him back, get the FBI, CIA, and the police to botch the investigation, get the U.S., the entire U.S. cabinet all on a plane to Japan with no code book, uh, get a third of the U.S. forces in the air over America at the time of the assassination in battle fatigues, get the Washington phone system cut off on November 22nd, get JFK's enemies on the Warren Commission and direct the autopsy and get the national media to go to sleep. I'm sure the military could not do all that. I'm sure that the power groups that were behind this assassination are way above the military, and the military were just lackeys and useful fools and pockets and splinter groups. I'm not, I don't think the U.S. military as a whole was consciously behind this, but rogue elements within the military, rogue elements within the mob, rogue elements within the intelligence agencies, a number of intelligence agencies were involved. This was a very, very high-level coup d'etat, and we know that uh, many uh, there's groups that were this Kennedy is not the first president to be assassinated by foreign powers. So this was uh, by people who are way above the law, and uh, I agree with with your with with, uh, Brent. with Brent that this was not just a military industrial complex. They couldn't do all this alone. All right, Brent. Well, let's expand on that then. Brent. If not LBJ and and uh, some in the military industrial complex, uh, who who do you see as being responsible? Well, I approach the assassination very conservatively. Um, I can only speak about what I have learned from various researchers. And um, I agree without question there was a conspiracy and a cover-up. 
who was responsible for that? I think you have to look at Operation Mongoose. You've got a lot of very pissed off people uh, with Cuban exiles that feel that they were betrayed. Working with those folks are future Watergate folks like um, Sturgis and E. Howard Hunt. So you've got a few key CIA people. Uh, you've got some military people also involved in intelligence, and I couldn't agree more with your guests, but absolutely, uh, you don't need a lot of people. You really don't to pull this thing off, and uh, you just put the snipers in the right place at the right time, and I think the mob was involved without question. Uh, they had the most to gain from it, and from what I've been able to find out, it looks like Hoffa financed it. And without let's not qu- forget the Jim... Jim Garrison, who's the only man to bring charges, uh, identified Permindex Corporation, which was Clay Shaw, Clay Shaw, Lewis Lewis Mortimer Bloomfield, and Charles de Gaulle was the one who tossed Permindex out of France, claiming that they were a murder inc. and were trying to assassinate him. So you know, when you got to look at Permindex and uh, uh, and those people above the above well, that. That's as well. part of the military industrial complex. Yes, it is, but it's not the military industrial complex as a whole. These are people who are far more powerful that give orders to the to military industrial complex people. All right, we'll take another time out. Back on the other side, more of my conversation with Brent Holland, JFK assassination from the Oval Office to Daily Plaza. And in studio, Nelson Thal, media scientist, Marshall McLuhan archivist, assassination researcher. Stay with us. The truth will set you free, but first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, winding down our 50th anniversary special on JFK and his assassination. And uh, Brent Holland is with us on the line from Kingston, Ontario, where he is a, a broadcaster and filmmaker, uh, composer, and the author of JFK Assassination from the Oval Office to Daily Plaza. He'll be speaking, the only Canadian invited to speak at the uh, 50th anniversary in Dallas, uh, and largely, I guess, because of his association with uh, the late Ted Sorensen, who was JFK's closest aide and speechwriter. Uh, who has also confirmed uh, to uh, Brent that there was a conspiracy. Uh, now, you were saying that you don't believe that this was a, a, a coup d'etat, uh, Brent, but I, I think if you look at sort of the trajectory of you know, where America has headed since 1963, uh, you know, one could almost sort of plot this, this slow-motion march towards a national security state, totalitarianism, and... One wonders whether that would have been possible if Kennedy had, let's say, served a second term followed by his brother Bobby. What do you think? Yeah, I I agree with you uh, completely. And that's something Abraham Bolden mentioned to me, too. He said, you know, he said, you just look around today um, at the lack of uh, rights and all the rights that have been taken away from us over the years. He said it just seems to be a constant spiral down. Ted said something to me, too, that was very profound. He said, rarely in a lifetime would you have a JFK. Rarely in a lifetime would you have a Dr. King or a Bobby. He said, they were taken away from us within five years. He said, that hurt the country. He said, the country has never recovered from that. And I understand that completely because I think Bobby, essentially, because we ended up with Nixon. Yes, yes. Uh, And then... 
in 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 a manner he was also assassinated uh, during Watergate. Absolutely. So absolutely. So he wasn't following the script. Uh, Nelson, expand on the idea of of of, of uh, the JFK assassination as a coup d'état. Uh, so the idea is to take over the executive branch, or or was it? What was that all about? Yeah, I mean, when you take a look at it, while they were worrying about uh, fighting over Kennedy's body, the uh, the police forces, the state police in Texas said it's illegal to to they actually it was illegal to remove his body from the state. They were fighting over it. Um, who was moving into the basement of the White House and b- setting up the microphones so that Nixon could start bugging? And uh, I mean. Th- Whoever launched this, what I believe was a coup d'etat, uh, wanted to not just kill the President of the United States, but take out the executive branch of government. And since the, then, they not only took over the executive branch of government, they had control of the judiciary, witness uh, the Warren Commission, and, and witness even the way in which uh, they had an, uh, they selected George W. Bush and the connection between Antonin Scalia, Eugene Scalia, and uh, and uh, and uh, Ted. Uh, um, his his lawyer Ted, Ted Olson. Olson and the connection there. The, so so the the branch the judicial branch of government is now out of in control of this coup. The ex- White House is in control, and now they finally have gotten control of all three branches of the government. So there's no separation of branches in the United States. And um, when you just take a look at the 9/11 and how it was run, and I mean the Gulf of Tonkin was a, was a false flag. It was uh, 9/11. Eleven. Uh, uh, um, <laughs> these are all fascist tactics. I, I go along with Kurt Waldheim, Waffen FSSS, became Secretary General of the United Nations. I mean, there's been a major coup d'état here, and one could argue. I wonder whether or not the bulge didn't go right to the White House. But Explain that. What do you mean? Well, the battle everywhere the you look, you've got <laughs> everywhere you look. May Brussel points out, and Sherman Skolnick points out, and Dave Emery points out. You've got you've got the the Nazi connection to the JFK assassination into this coup. Brent, what do you think of that? What do you make of that? A Nazi no. connection? No. Uh, no, I don't see it. All right. And you've got Bush, <laughs> uh, Brown Harriman Bank that financed. That financed the, uh, the Nazi Germany's war production. Uh, Prescott Bush was the C- CEO of Brown Harriman Bank. Uh, his son, both his his son and his grandson, became president of the United States, and uh, George became George Herbert Walker Bush was. was became head of the America's secret political police. I mean, we've had a complete uh, fascist coup d'etat takeover of the United States as, as far as I can see, and it looks like the proof is in the pudding. Uh, Brent, let, let's talk about sure. uh, what you're going to be doing down in uh, Dallas on the 50th. Uh, you, are you going to be presenting your film? I am going to be presenting uh, two documentaries, actually, that are being uh, printed as we speak to be companions with the book. One is on Abraham Bolden, and the other one is a short, brief – how can I put this – reflective documentary on Ted Sorensen. And in that documentary is what the explosiveness is that he told me that confirmed conspiracy. 
And that's something I haven't mentioned tonight. And I don't mind mentioning it because as I quote Dr. Robert McClelland, who worked on JFK, history belongs to everybody. All right. Well, I thought the explosive announcement was that uh, these two Secret Service agents had confirmed that they witnessed the shot coming from the grassy knoll. So you've got something else to lay on us. Absolutely. And I don't mind sharing this. I just hope people go and buy the book anyways. But that wasn't the point for me to write the book or when I do my shows. It's to inspire folks and question everything, as your logo says. Okay. Ted said in an interview that without and I'm going to quote him now without answering any questions because he won't answer them people are going to know this year and this was March 2010 folks why JFK was killed all right that's exactly what he said and that is explosive for a single reason that means conspiracy Without question, he just confirmed conspiracy, and he would not go further with that. And as I related to at the beginning of the show, um, only a few months later, Ted was dead after getting off the phone with the White House. Now, I, I think that is just pure coincidence. I don't want to go out there and say that <laughs> he died um, because of something that the White House had done. But without a question – when he said those words, people will find out why, and the key word there is why he was killed. That means that he knew it wasn't just some whack job named Oswald but a lucky shot. But he was certain that it would have been revealed in 2010. Exactly, and I did some research. Yeah, what happened in 2010? Castro was on his way out. Now, that doesn't mean Castro right away, folks. I want to just relax. Castro was not involved with the assassination at all. But I had mentioned Ted wrote a letter to get Khrushchev to pull the missiles out. Guess what's still in Cuba? The missiles. Bingo. And they don't want to open up that can of worms because they don't want to risk. There's still some hawks. In the in the uh, in and around the White House and in the Pentagon for sure, that would not sit very well with the public uh, and these hawks. They would want to go back in and take out those missiles. And why risk another nuclear standoff and an escalation? So was was Ted Sorensen perhaps expecting Castro, who was yes. on his way out, to spill the beans? I think he was expecting Castro to die, and then the the national security would be over, and they'd be able to release those facts. Because let's face it, Castro is a loose cannon. He always has been. Um, His his human rights record is deplorable. Let's not forget that uh, Che Guevara wanted to get rid of every gay person uh, on the island of Cuba. When he came to power, and he was going around shooting twelve-year-old kids with his own pistol. This was this is this distresses me when I see uh, it's very chic, of course, to wear to wear Che Guevara T-shirts, and I see kids, uh, you know, high school kids, and 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 I and I always say to myself, don't these don't they realize who this guy no, really was? They really don't. They really don't. And this is this is the problem, you know. And, and this is one of the reasons why I do my show, as I'm sure you do your show. Uh, listen, I did a show on the Titanic, and I had people write me emails saying that whatever happened to Jack, <laughs> which is the DiCaprio character. Right, right. Yes. That's, yeah. It's frightening, isn't it? Oh, terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Nelson, uh, 
as we uh, as we close the 50th anniversary, what do you what do you want to leave us with here? Treason doth never prosper, for it prospers. None dare call it treason. Uh, this is as long as uh, the cover-up's going to continue. I think eventually it'll come out, but I think we've got a long way still to go. But we've been doing this now for. Uh, I've been doing anniversary shows for at least 30, more than 30 years. We'll just have to wait it out and hopefully see what happens. But uh, it's an exciting topic, and uh, uh, we'll just watch and see what happens in the United States. Certainly, it looks like um, uh, more and more the country is going into Big Brother Big Brother mode and moving away from democracy, that's for sure. Uh, Brent, why does it still matter 50 years later? It matters because if it can happen in the United States, it can happen anywhere. Uh, the United States is the poster child, if you will, for freedom around the world. And if it can happen there, it can happen here just as easily. Um, I would like to uh, just leave you with that Ted and both President Kennedy felt that peace was the way to go. They could have been the, the two first globalists, if you will, in terms of peace. Um, you know, Kennedy said, for in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet, we all breathe the same air, and we all cherish our children's future. And I, that's beautiful. That's from the peace, uh, the peace speech that you had alluded to, June 10th, 1963. Nelson, how do you think uh, history would be different or how would America or the world be different had Jack Kennedy survi- been allowed to survive and serve, let's say, a second term in office? Yeah, I think that we would have a completely se- different situation. We'd have a separation of powers in the United States. I mean, everything that went down through the 80s, the 90s, uh, we wouldn't have the 9-11s, we wouldn't have the Bushes in power, we wouldn't have the Reagans in power, we wouldn't have all the different... Uh, Different fascist groups uh, taking over America. I think that it would be a, a, a it would be difference between day and night. Well, uh, Brent Holland, uh, thank you so much for this, uh, and I wish you well on your trip down to Dallas for the 50th anniversary. Now, in attendance, uh, watching your documentaries will be uh, none other than none other than Oliver Stone and the man who played Garrison, Kevin Costner. I understand. That's right. And Jim Mars will be there, too. And I'm looking forward to sharing a beer with Jim. Uh, a very funny story. When he came on my show, I said, Jim, give me five minutes before showtime. I'm going to get a cup of coffee. He said, I've already got mine, except mine has a head on it. That's Jim <laughs> Mars, folks. Yeah, that sounds like Jim. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's terrific. Thank you so much. And quid pro quo, I'm going to have you back on my show, too, my friend. I appreciate that. Brent Holland, JFK assassination from the Oval Office to Daily Plaza. Appreciate your time. Nelson Thal, as always, well, we close the book. And uh, always appreciate your uh, your insights. And, and uh, as always, I, I give you credit. I mean, you're the one who led me down this rabbit hole. And it's, it's all your fault. It's, <laughs> thanks, Richard. You've been just a gem. It's terrific opening up people's minds. Hopefully, they'll go read the books and get into it and start asking questions. Give us a title of that book. That the one Farewell that was... America by James Hepburn. Uh, Coup d'etat by Edward Lutwak. Uh, Rebel Magazine, Premier Issue, The Nazi Connection to the JFK Assassination by May Brussel. And anything, follow Dave Emery, Sherman Skolnick, and the other researchers. All right, Nelson, thank you. My thanks to Tim Spreen. Back next week with Michael Cremo, talking about archaeological anomalies.
Has man walked this planet for millions, perhaps billions of years? We'll find out. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. <laughs>